So iodine is an essential item for every cell in the body. We can't live without it. And you can't make thyroid hormone or any hormone in the body without iodine. And I mentioned to you that the thyroid gland has to release inactive thyroid hormone T4, which has to be converted to T3 or deiodinated. You take one of the iodine atoms off it to make it an active thyroid hormone that'll bind to its receptor. And then you get the response that you're looking for. In the case of thyroid hormone, produce heat in the cells and you'll be warmer or your brain will work better. Your energy will be better. You're listening to Eat for Life, the show that aims to help you identify the root causes of what ails you so you can heal and live the life you are meant for. I'm your host, Sammy G. If I had to pick the top two master nutrients for health, they would be iodine and zinc. I've talked a lot about zinc in previous episodes and its importance in mental health. But today we're talking about iodine with special guest, Dr. David Brownstein, a true warrior and world leader in holistic medicine. Dr. Brownstein is a board-certified family physician who utilizes the best of conventional and alternative therapies. He's the medical director for the Center for Holistic Medicine in West Bloomfield, Michigan, here in the United States. He is a member of the American Academy of Family Physicians and serves on the board for the International College of Integrative Medicine. Dr. Brownstein has lectured internationally about his success using natural therapies. He has authored 16 books, including Iodine, Why You Need It, Why You Can't Live Without It. We tend to think of iodine for thyroid health, but in truth, every cell in your body requires iodine to function optimally, including, but not limited, to estrogen metabolism, balancing heavy metals such as lead and mercury, as well as a virucidal helping white blood cells produce hydrogen peroxide to fight viral and bacterial infections, increased rates of autoimmune diseases, thyroid disorders, and cancer correlate with our worldwide iodine deficiency, which is around 97%. Thanks for being with us today. Here's my conversation with Dr. Brownstein. Welcome to the show, Dr. Brownstein. I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk about iodine today because it's such a life-changing nutrient that every cell requires to function optimally. So today we're going to talk about its importance in not just the thyroid gland, but also estrogen metabolism, menstrual cycle pain, scars, as a virucidal, and so much more. So Dr. Brownstein, I'm curious, what was the turning point in your career when you realized that iodine deficiency was an epidemic here in the United States? Well, that goes back to the beginning of my medical career. I'll shorten the story up a little bit. I was a conventionally trained doctor and just wanted to go to medical school and be a physician modeled after my family physician since I was young. And I didn't go to medical school with alternative medicine in mind at all. I went with just conventional medicine. That's all I did growing up. We went to the doctor when we were sick and we took whatever the doctor prescribed. We didn't question anything. And I didn't take any vitamins. So I went to med school and I did my residency in family practice, started practicing conventional family practice. And I remember telling my patients not to take supplements and it was a waste. So my turning point came about six months into that practice when I was negotiating a buy-in for a partnership. I get up to get ready for work and I blurt out to my wife, for the first time, you know, I don't want to be a doctor anymore. And she stops what she's doing. She's getting ready for work as well. And she looks at me and we got $100,000 in student loans at the time. She's known me since I was 18. That's all I wanted to do. That's all I was, took every class at University of Michigan to get in med school and, you know, all that stuff. 
She said, what's wrong? And I'm like, I can't do this for the next 30 or 40 years. She goes, why? And I'm like, well, I'm just prescribing drugs that aren't treating the underlying cause of the symptoms many times. And I'm just prescribing other drugs to treat the problems from the first drugs. And people aren't getting better. And I said, it's not, it's not good medicine. And she said, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. And she said, why don't you do another residency? And I'm like, nah, one of those was enough. So I was really floundering and I was losing sleep. And at that time, a patient had been bothering me to meet his chiropractor. And I had never referred to chiropractors. I used to tell people don't go. I thought they were dangerous, even though I never met one or never knew what the philosophy was. So in my anxiety and my lack of sleep, I let that patient set up a meeting with that chiropractor. And the meeting comes around the following week. And I remember the night. I remember going to meet him. I remember leaving the house and telling Allison that I'm going to cancel the meeting. It's a waste of my time. And she said, that's rude. It's too late. Go and be nice. So I went to the meeting. His name was Dr. Robert Radke. He was a functional chiropractor, applied kinesiologist, using a lot of nutrition in his practice. And he started talking about functional biochemistry and chiropractic philosophy, which I knew none of this. And he brought me a book at the meeting, Healing with Nutrition by Jonathan Wright, who's an allopathic physician. And I took that book home. I read that book till 2.30 in the morning. I had to work the next day too. And I was really excited after meeting Dr. Radke and hearing his thoughts and then seeing this book. There's really, that was the first two things that were introduced to me that as a different form of medicine. The chapter I focused on that night was the chapter on heart disease. And my dad had suffered his first heart attack at 40, his second heart attack at 42. Over the next 20 years, he had two bypass surgeries, numerous angioplasties, and he was on 12 medications to control blood pressure, cholesterol, and diabetes. And he looked awful. He was pale and pasty. He was getting continual angina. He was using nitroglycerins to control his angina like candy every day and couldn't do anything but get chest pain. I was just waiting for the phone call that he died at any moment. And so I called my dad in the office the next morning before I left for work. And I said, hey, I want to draw some blood work on you. Can you come by? And he drew the blood test. I get him back a few days later. And I checked two things on him. I checked his testosterone levels and his thyroid levels. And his testosterone levels were below detectable limits, so they couldn't register on the test. And his thyroid levels were in the reference range, but in the lower part of the reference range. So I put him on two things natural thyroid hormone and natural testosterone. And within seven days, his 20-year history of continual angina melted away, never to return. Within 30 days, his cholesterol levels in the 300s on medication fell below 200. And I was able to take him off those medications and he still stayed below 200, even though he never changed his bad dietary habits. He was a good eater. More importantly, he looked better. He acted better. He went from pale and pasty to pink and healthier looking. He was able to do things I mean, I remember he called me up seven days after we started this and he said, I've had no chest pain today. And I said, when's the last time that happened? He goes, I don't remember. And then I saw him and he looked like a new man. So once I saw that happen, I'm like, that's the medicine I want to do. And I went to the partners of the practice and I said, I need to leave. And they said, what do you, why? And I'm like, I want to go do holistic medicine. And they said, what's that? And I said, I'm not sure, but I'm going to go figure it out. And they said, why don't you just do it here? And I'm like, no, I need a holistic office where the front desk people, the nurses, everybody is on the same page about what we're doing. And so that was my turning point. That's how I started. And for the first 10 years or so of that practice, I never used iodine. 
I used a lot of thyroid hormone on patients and, and bioidentical natural hormones. Patients were getting better. My practice was growing and I f- felt I was doing good for the patients and moving them in the right direction and treating the underlying cause of their illness. But I didn't like how I had three quarters of my patients on thyroid hormone. I just didn't think we were born to need thyroid hormone just because we're getting a little bit older. Why would three quarters of my patients need thyroid hormone to feel good? So I would go to the cofactors of what makes the thyroid gland work well. And I would study each one of them like selenium and magnesium and B vitamins and iodine was part of that. And I would check people on these levels. Now, at that point, there was no really good iodine testing available. But I would check people on levels that I could draw like selenium and magnesium and B vitamins. I would replace them when I found them uh, with low levels. So I would try various cofactors and nothing worked as well as thyroid hormone about getting people to feel better. But I would try iodine on and off. I would try low doses, medium doses, high doses. It never made people worse. It didn't really make them feel better. And I would get frustrated with it. And I was really interested in iodine because I live in Michigan in the, around the Great Lakes, and our soil is one of the most iodine deficient areas of the world. It's been known for over 100 years. All the states that border the Great Lakes and Canada, you know, the Canadian areas that border the Great Lakes have been known to have really low iodine levels. So I figured people were low in iodine, but there just wasn't a test available to check it. I would get frustrated with iodine. I'd use it, I'd not use it, I'd use it, I'd not use it. And somewhere around a decade later, I read an article, I read a letter to the editor from a doctor, Guy Abraham, who had developed an iodine loading test and became very interested in that because I could maybe perhaps test people. So I called him up. He took a little bit of cajoling and I took a lot of grief from him at first till he got to know me. We became friends and I started to fly out to California to work in a lab with him four to six times a year. And he set up a lab at my office and I started testing people for iodine, you know, writing papers with him and researching things. And he taught me more about iodine than he'll ever know. What I realized was I was using the wrong form of iodine. When I started using the right form of iodine, I found that I no longer needed three quarters of my patients on thyroid hormone. I needed less than a quarter of them on thyroid hormone. And they continued to feel good and they felt better when they got an iodine. And then I learned more and more about iodine's relationship to the other glandular tissue, breast, the ovaries, uterus, pancreas, prostate, as well as the thyroid gland. And that you can't make any hormone in the body without iodine. Here I was using these bioidentical natural hormones, which I still do today, but now I use them in conjunction with iodine. It's transformed my practice. It's the single best thing that I've done over 30 plus years of practicing medicine. And I always state that if the government comes to my office and says, we don't like this holistic medicine stuff you're doing, which they have, and they said, you could take one thing with you, iodine would be it. It's inexpensive. Every cell in the body needs and requires iodine for function. The glandular tissue concentrates it for a reason because it needs it to make all the hormones of the body. We're suffering with glandular problems in our country. One in seven women have breast cancer. One in three men have prostate cancer. We all know people with pancreatic cancer these days. We all know people with ovarian, uterine, and thyroid cancer is the fastest growing cancer. And we're a mess in our country. And I believe it's in large part to, it's not, not even the U.S., but it's you know in the Western world, it's a global iodine deficiency problem. And in my office, we've tested well over 7,000 people now. Over 97% are deficient in iodine, the vast majority markedly deficient in iodine. And I can tell you the only ones that aren't deficient have usually seen a lecture of mine, read a book of mine, 
and they're taking iodine. Otherwise, you can't get enough iodine in our food supply right now to put optimal levels in the human body. It's impossible. We can talk about that more. That's my short sort of long story of how I got involved with it. It's been a good ride. I so appreciate you sharing about your father because I think when it's someone that's so close to us and we see them suffering and we think, gosh, I want to help and you being a physician, but having also the discernment and the desire to, to realize and make these connections rather than just setting it aside and saying, oh, that's woo-woo, nutrients don't work. But you decide, oh, I think I'm going to look into this a little bit more. And we're so blessed to have you, of course, and all the work that you've done over the years. And I didn't realize that 97%, that is really, really significant. You talk a lot about that in your book, which we'll link to in the show notes. And then also the right form of iodine, which I have found that as well. So Dr. Brownstein, I'm curious, like you said, the highest concentration of iodine is in the thyroid gland, and we can't make thyroid hormone without it. Would you mind walking us through how iodine supports thyroid function? So the thyroid glands in the lower part of the neck and it weighs about 1.5 ounces, that thyroid gland produces about a teaspoon of thyroid hormone for a whole year. And that teaspoon of thyroid hormone has to drive the metabolic processes of the cells 24-7, 365 days of the year, all the time. So if you have little variations in that teaspoon, people feel it. And since the thyroid affects every cell in the human body, if you're too much or too little thyroid hormone, they're going to have symptoms and not feel good. And one of the most common problems that you see in clinical practice is malfunctioning thyroid gland, particularly a low thyroid gland. So the thyroid gland produces two major thyroid hormones, L-thyroxine and triiodothyronine, or shorter versions of T4 and T3. T4 is the inactive thyroid hormone. T3 is the active form of thyroid hormone. The four and the three refer to how many iodine atoms are attached to the thyroglobulin molecule. So you need adequate amounts of iodine. There's other cofactors, as I mentioned at the beginning of that, are needed to make this thyroid hormone, but iodine is really the crucial step for that. So if we live or if we're not getting enough iodine in our diet or we're getting other things in our diet or in our environment that are pushing iodine out of the body, which is both what's happening, I call it the double whammy in my book, of what's happening with iodine levels now, iodine deficiency becomes prominent. And that's what's happening across the U.S. And our food supply is too low in iodine. We're getting exposed to chemicals that have, they're called goitrogens, which stimulate a goiter, stimulate a swollen thyroid. And these chemicals include bromide and fluoride. They're closely related to iodine. For those who can recall chemistry in high school or if you took chemistry in college, the periodic table of elements, group 17 are the halides. They're on the right side of the periodic table. And these are grouped together because they're similar structures. And in the human body, they can competitively inhibit one another, meaning you get too much of one, can push out the other one. Now, there's four major halides in that group, iodine, fluoride, bromide, and chloride. Two of those halides are essential. We can't live without them or we won't exist. That's iodine and chloride. And two are non-essential toxic items. That's bromide and fluoride. These non-essential toxic items poison enzymes in the body. They bind up iodine receptors and they can competitively inhibit iodine. So if we get too much bromide and fluoride in our environment, in our diet, it can kick out particularly iodine. And the reason particularly iodine is iodine, the size of the structure is very similar to bromide. So bromide is a good competitive inhibitor of iodine and vice versa. Now, 
we don't have bromide receptors in our body. We have iodine receptors in our body. But if you don't have enough iodine and you get too much bromide, you can bind up those iodine receptors with bromide and that causes problems. I can tell you bromide is huge is a huge problem in our modern world. Bromide is used in food, it's used in drink, it's used in consumer items, it's used in computers and iPhones and all the electronics. It's a fire retardant used in cushions and couches and beds and carpet and curtains. Dr. Abraham and I did that research on bromide and we found huge bromide levels in people. And I wrote about a study in my book where I compared uh, nine breast cancer patients with nine non-breast cancer patients and found bromide levels were twofold higher in the breast cancer patients and iodine levels were twofold lower. I think that compared to our predecessors, our iodine levels have declined further than theirs were. And they may have been low in iodine too, and we're similarly low, but they didn't have the exposure to these toxic chemicals, fluoride and bromide, fluoride from our water supply. And fluoride and bromide are found in many drugs in the market today, and bromide in all the items that I mentioned before. So that's double whammy to our iodine problem. Not only do we not get enough iodine in our diet, but we got these toxic halides that push more iodine out. So we become more iodine deficient over the years. And that's what's driving this one in seven women with breast cancer, one in three men with prostate cancer, thyroid cancer being the fastest growing cancer, pancreatic, ovarian, uterine, cancer growing at epidemic rates. Unfortunately, that's where we are today. And we've got a sick country. COVID exposed that to everybody. Iodine was part of my treatment for COVID. Iodine not only helps the glandular tissue make these hormones and supports the immune system, the immune system can't fight back against infections without iodine. So if you're iodine deficient, you get hit with a viral infection like coronavirus, you're going to have a harder time getting over it than someone who has enough iodine. If you have bromide toxicity, you're going to have even a worse time getting over it. So I write about this in all my books and, you know, this is 30 year journey and I'm still learning as I go, but that's why I would tell the powers that be if they tell me one thing I can take with me, it's iodine. Yeah, I so appreciate you walking us through that, Dr. Brownstein. And I was thinking back to when I was a child, they gave us fluoride tablets for our teeth. I've never had a cavity, but I'm sure that those fluoride tablets didn't do me any good. So I always think about that. And then with regard to bromide and all the byproducts, right? So I think about all the flours that are used, the gluten-based flours, just white all-purpose flour, and how that is so massively in our food supply and our children are eating it. It's really unfortunate. So I really appreciate you walking us through how these things get into our environment, our food supply, textiles, everything. And no wonder we're seeing the rates of disease that we see. One thing I'm curious about, and you've talked about this before, but with regard to reverse T3, what do you see with regard to iodine and lowering reverse T3? So iodine is an essential item for every cell in the body. We can't live without it. And you can't make thyroid hormone or any hormone in the body without iodine. And I mentioned to you that the thyroid gland has to release inactive thyroid hormone T4, which has to be converted to T3 or deiodinated. You take one of the iodine atoms off it to make it an active thyroid hormone that'll bind to its receptor and then you get the response that you're looking for. In the case of thyroid hormone, produce heat in the cells and you'll be warmer or your brain will work better, your energy will be better. So there is another compound called reverse T3 that's part of that. And conventional medicine says reverse T3 is just a not active thyroid hormone, uh, inactive thyroid hormone that really has no, they really don't mention much of it and they don't really mention the purpose of checking it. But reverse T3 
when you have inactive thyroid hormone, the thyroid gland produces T4, that has to be converted to active thyroid hormone, T3. It can be also converted into reverse T3. So it can go one way or the other, reverse T3 or, or active T3. Now, one of the reasons the body will park iodine, I mean, thyroid hormone into reverse T3 is if you're sick, you need rest. Your body will slow down your thyroid hormone production and park it into reverse T3. However, if you're iodine deficient and if your thyroid gland gets inflamed, you, know, you can get an autoimmune problem of your thyroid gland, such as Hashimoto's disease or Graves' disease. These are iodine deficient diseases. I describe this in detail in my thyroid book and my iodine book. And in those cases, the body will park a lot of thyroid hormone into reverse T3 because there's inflammation going on in the thyroid. It's not working correctly. And it's basically telling you to go to bed to rest till it gets better. Well, when I teach doctors about thyroid hormone, we go through the whole metabolic pathway of thyroid hormone. And what I tell them is an elevated reverse T3 is usually one of three things. It's iodine deficiency, which is the most common one. Number two, it's congestion or liver overload, and people need to do a liver cleanse. And uh, you know, your liver, one of its main jobs is to keep the blood clean. And in our toxic world, the liver works overtime to do that. And if the liver gets congested, doesn't function well, your body's going to tell you to go to sleep and just rest. It's, it can't function optimally. And the third thing is metal toxicity, such as mercury, lead, cadmium, nursing, nickel will all reflect in this elevated reverse T3. So one of the first things you can do when you see an elevated reverse T3, I teach doctors, is really look, are they iodine deficient? Sometimes just putting them in iodine will help. The other two things that I talked about, because iodine has a chaotropic effect with metals in that it seems to displace metals and allow the body to release heavy metals that are normally difficult to release. We don't quite know the mechanism of how it happens, but it happens, and I've documented that it happens. So an elevated reverse T3 is very commonly found in blood tests. A lot of lectures, when I originally went, doctors would tell other doctors to just prescribe T3 for that, or active thyroid hormone. It's really not treating the underlying cause of the problem. The underlying cause is iodine deficiency. And if I ever ran into problems with treating people with thyroid, it was when I was using too much thyroid hormone and too much T3. I don't really think there's a, much of a need for T3 for long-term use on people once you get iodine levels situated. Yeah, I'm really glad that you said that because there seems to be an epidemic. We see this a lot in the functional world of kind of overdosing people with thyroid hormones. So to have a deeper conversation about, again, root cause and why is this happening to begin with and how can we really get in there and correct it in a way that is going to benefit the patient? Obviously, that's just common sense. So again, grateful that you've walked us through that. Dr. Brownstein, I'm curious, we're told that iodized salt is going to correct this issue for us, but there's a lot of problems with these heavily processed salts. Why is this not a sufficient source of iodine? Iodization of salt occurred in the 1920s in the U.S., and it occurred because of what was happening in the Midwest, right in my area, Michigan and Ohio particularly. And as the country expanded from East Coast to West Coast, the population expanded in the early 20th century. A problem was developing, which was noticed at the highest levels of the U.S. government. The problem was that people were developing goiters at huge rates. The goiter is a swollen thyroid gland. Thyroid gland sits in the lower part of the neck. If you look at old paintings from Italy and elsewhere, you'll see a lot of depictions of goiter and swollen thyroids in some of those paintings. 
So in the U.S. in the early 20th century, goiter was becoming a problem. But the bigger problem was the animals were having thyroid problems. And the animals were not procreating correctly, were not growing to their optimal size. And there was a worry from the highest levels of the U.S. government that as our population expanded and colonized from east to west across the United States, that the human population growth would outstrip the food supply. We have a humanitarian crisis on our hands. We couldn't supply enough food to maintain our population. So there was a doctor from Ohio who had written a paper on iodine in medical school, and the U.S. government commissioned him to do a study on animals to find out the minimal amount of iodine needed in food to prevent the thyroid problems the animals were having. So he did a study on animals where he put varying amounts of iodine in food, and what he found was the minimal amount of iodine where the animals could procreate correctly and grew to the right size. So from that data, he estimated the amount of iodine that humans would need. What happened at that point was they put iodine in salt to get that iodine in. And the first studies were done in Ohio. The next studies were done in Michigan. And what they found was teenage girls who were starting their menses that the rate of goiter or swelling of the thyroid went down a couple hundred percent as soon as they put iodized salt in. They utilized iodized salt for the rest of the country. And really, a small amount of iodine and salt was found to help with goiter. Now, that was back in the 1920s. That was before fluoridation of water. It was before bromide was used in all these consumer goods and in food and water. And they didn't quite have the same exposure that we have now. So that's why I said earlier that our iodine levels are worse than our predecessors because of that whole toxicity exposure. Now, iodized salt is still effective at preventing goiter in the vast majority of people, but what it's not enough to give enough iodine for the rest of the body. That's why I think we all need to supplement with iodine right now. I don't think you can get enough from food. Really, the only good food sources of iodine are from the ocean, would be ocean animals and ocean vegetables. But the ocean is also polluted with bromide and fluoride. And the ocean animals and the ocean vegetables have the same iodine transport molecules called sodium iodine symporter that we have. So they can get overwhelmed with fluoride and bromide and competitively inhibit iodine out of them. The researcher was David Marine. I was looking it up as I was talking to you. He was a physician in Ohio, and he did those original iodine studies. Many practitioners recommend kelp as a natural source of iodine. Reasons I don't like kelp as a source of iodine is because kelp supplements are often contaminated with arsenic and other toxins present in our oceans. Plus, many kelp supplements tested by an independent lab were found to contain twice as much iodine as listed on their labels, which is a major safety concern. As Dr. Brownstein and I discussed, we highly encourage you to work with a practitioner that is iodine literate with a broad understanding of how to use this powerful nutrient. Companion nutrients, as well as liver health and dietary changes are also important for iodine to work optimally in your body. And if you're ready to finally get to the root causes of your symptoms, I invite you to book a complimentary consultation with me to see how I can support you. Go to eatfor.life, then click on the free consultation button to book your free discovery call today. It's so powerful to see the progression, again, how our environment really impacts us on that level. And the thing that I'm always concerned about with these heavily processed salts is 
to your point, this was helpful or can be helpful for many people with goiter, but the salt in and of itself and the processing of the salt and all the challenges with that, that's always my concern. You've written and spoken about that as well. So I always recommend things that are unprocessed, like pink salt or Himalayan salt or something that's going to be more bioavailable in the body and not create another toxic challenge. So the problem with salt is, and I've written a book on it, Salt Your Way to Health. Problem with salt on it is salt has been refined. That's the thin white stuff that we all are familiar with. It's in restaurants all over the country. Morton's Table Salt is an example of a refined salt. And the reason it's white and small in size, it's had all the minerals taken out of it. The minerals are referred to as impurities from the salt manufacturers. Well, the minerals are not impurities. The minerals are needed for us. So I recommend people use unrefined salt, such as what you said, Himalayan salt or Celtic brand sea salt, Salinas Celtic brand sea salt, and Redmond salt are three versions I've tested numerous times for toxicity. And I think they're good versions of salt. But there's very little iodine in unrefined salt. There's less iodine in unrefined salt than refined salt. Again, you're not going to get enough iodine from refined salt. You're going to get less iodine from unrefined salt. Either way, you're going to need to sell. My view is work with an iodine literate, functional, holistic doctor who can test your levels and appropriately guide you. But in our toxic world, I think that most of us are going to need to supplement with iodine. Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. I know that if I don't take my iodine every day, I definitely notice the difference in how I feel. My eyelashes start falling out. I notice more hair loss on my head. It's very fast, at least in me. I mean, I notice it very, very quickly. So yeah, the reason it's fast is we're not iodine camels. We don't have a hump of iodine that we can draw on. So iodine is used up as soon as you use it. So if you stop for a day, your iodine levels dramatically decline. Two to three days after you stop, your iodine levels just go back to this deficient baseline of where you were. So you can feel it. And I, I'm like you. I can feel it too in a day or two of stopping iodine. Um, I feel my energy level drop and my brain fog. Difficulty concentrating comes forward a little bit. Iodine is very important. And since we don't have iodine stores, it needs to be supplemented on a daily basis. Yeah, constantly replenished. Yes, thank you. And we'll be linking, of course, to all your books in the show notes. I'd like to kind of get back, Dr. Brownstein, to how iodine helps other hormones and their receptors, specifically estrogen metabolism. As you know, it's so wonderful for so many things like reducing hot flashes. It's great for the menstrual cycle shrinking cysts, things like this, skin tags. I'm curious, can you share with us a little bit more about that, about how iodine helps in with, with our other hormones outside of the thyroid gland? So every single cell in the body has a requirement for iodine to function optimally. And we've been designed for iodine, but we've also been designed pretty well that we can function in an iodine deficient environment. We just don't function well. I mentioned earlier that iodine is concentrated in glandular tissue. The glands include the thyroid, ovaries, uterus, prostate, and pancreas. All those glandular tissue produce hormones, some locally, some released into the bloodstream and have distal effects on the body. You simply cannot make a hormone without iodine. So if you're iodine deficient, all those glands are affected by it. Now, they're not only affected by their hormone production, they're affected in their structure. So there's a continuum of iodine deficiency where if you have enough iodine, you have adequate amounts of iodine, you have a normal architecture of the glands. The glands look normal, there's no growth on them, and they look healthy. In iodine deficiency, the first thing that happens in these glands are you start getting a disrupted architecture, and many times cysts start to form. 
If it goes on longer, the cysts become hard and nodular. The gland usually enlarges, and the thyroid gets a goiter. And if it goes on longer, they take a hyperplastic appearance. If you took a biopsy and look at them under a microscope, that's a precursor to cancer in those tissues, and cancer is the last step. So in animal, test tube, and human studies, iodine has been shown to arrest that progression wherever it catches it and reverse it. There's not many things that reverse cells that are moving into cancer or become cancerous, but iodine is one of them. And it's called an apoptotic effect where it can turn cancer cells from rapidly dividing cells back into normal cells and stop them from just dividing, dividing, dividing until it metabolically overwhelms the individual and they die. And again, this is why I believe this iodine deficiency epidemic is why we're seeing one in seven women with breast cancer, one in three men with prostate cancer, ovarian, uterine, pancreatic, and thyroid, the fastest growing cancer, you know, all those other ones increasing at epidemic rates. That's the major health problem our country, one of the major health problems our country is facing today. Indeed. Thank you for walking us through that as well. I kind of want to get back to autoimmune thyroid disorders because there's a lot of confusion about this. In your book, Iodine, Why You Need It, Why You Can't Live Without It, you explain, like you've said so brilliantly today, that falling iodine levels are going to correlate with an incidence of autoimmune disorders. Interestingly, I found this in the functional community. We're told that iodine exacerbates Hashimoto's and Graves' disease and should not be taken in these conditions. So I was hoping we could kind of go back to that a little bit. And if you could share with us a little bit more about that. I have a chapter in my thyroid book and a chapter in my iodine book on this. And there's a myth going around that iodine causes and worsens Hashimoto's disease. Well, I can refute that myth very easily and ask you the following questions. Has Hashimoto's disease gone up or down over the last four decades? Uh, It's absolutely gone up. Epidemically up. Oh yeah. Epidemically. Yes. When I was in my training, you'd see a patient here and there with Hashimoto's. Now you see kids with Hashimoto's disease. Hashimoto's is commonly diagnosed if people check the appropriate labs for it. During the last four decades, has iodine levels gone up or down in our population? They've gone down. The WHO has checked this. The U.S. government has checked this through the NHANES National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. So as iodine levels have declined, Hashimoto's has gone up. That's an inverse correlation. That disproves the hypothesis that iodine causes Hashimoto's disease. That single fact or the single confluence of facts disprove iodine causes Hashimoto's disease. Now, iodine deficiency may be causing Hashimoto's disease. I mean, that could be up for debate, but iodine does not cause Hashimoto's disease. That is not up for debate. My belief is iodine deficiency is the major cause of Hashimoto's disease. I've treated many patients with iodine with Hashimoto's disease and their Hashimoto's disease resolves. I have two daughters who I diagnosed with Hashimoto's, well, actually my wife diagnosed them at dinner, 12 years old, when we're having dinner, and one was 12, one was 11. Kids were complaining of being tired, they got headaches, and they were active, they were in soccer and doing things, and complaining that they're tired and they have headaches and they're cold or something. My wife says, you think they got a thyroid problem? And I remember I was holding the fork of food, and I put the fork down, and I hit myself in the forehead, I'm like, you know, I treat people all day, I just didn't father looked and it's like the shoemaker's kids without shoes. So I draw their levels and they both have Hashimoto's disease. And I document this in my lecture where I put them on iodine and I show their Hashimoto's titers going down over time. And a couple years later, neither of them have signs of Hashimoto's disease. Iodine is not the only thing we did. We did some diet changes and some nutritional support, but iodine was the main factor in that. Thank you for sharing that story with us because it's 
like you said, this seems to be going around in the holistic functional community that you need to stay away from iodine in these conditions. So I'm glad we were able to have that conversation. Dr. Brownstein, I'd like to transition to the immune system. You touched on that a bit ago, how iodine helps white blood cells produce hydrogen peroxide to fight viral and bacterial infections. I was hoping we could talk about this a little bit more. Of course, those cofactors, vitamins A, vitamin C, vitamin D. But I'm curious, what have you noticed in your patient population with regard to pneumonia and influenza-like illnesses? And then, of course, you mentioned COVID. We know that iodine is wonderful for COVID as well. So I'd love to talk about that a little bit more with you. So as you mentioned, iodine is needed for white blood cells to produce hydrogen peroxide and other items to kill foreign invaders. So iodine has direct antiseptic properties to it, meaning it can kill viruses and bacteria and parasites. It's one of the reasons before surgery, they'll rub iodine in your skin to cleanse the skin from any bacteria or other infectious organism that could potentially cause a problem. It's also one of the reasons I used iodine as part of my COVID protocol. And I, I wrote about iodine in my book, My Holistic Approach to Viruses. So iodine's been sort of a mainstay of mine for treating people during flu season. Every flu season from 20 to 120,000 Americans die every year, more are hospitalized. In our practice, we just don't see that. We don't see our patients dying from the flu. We don't see our patients hospitalized from the flu. None of my partners can recall a patient dying from the flu. I can't recall, and my partners can't recall a patient hospitalized from the flu in 30 years of doing this. So part of the reason is I think that we've got people on iodine, but I also used iodine as part of my sick protocol. So at the first sign of a scratchy throat or a cough or a fever or something, I had people use high-dose vitamin A, 100,000 units a day of straight vitamin A, not beta-carotene. 50,000 units of vitamin D, 25 to 50 milligrams of iodine, or if they were already on iodine, I just had them double their dose, whatever they were taking. And uh, ACD and vitamin C, 1,000 milligrams an hour, either till they got bowel tolerance or they got better. And I had them to use those high doses for about four days. And what those doses were doing was supporting the immune system, helping the body produce more hydrogen peroxide to fight foreign invaders and having a direct antiseptic effect for these viral and or bacterial organisms. You know, they're causing so many problems. And during the coronavirus epidemic, it's played out very well. Our protocol, which also included nebulized peroxide and iodines, we had people nebulize. Nebulized means to turn a liquid into a vapor so you can breathe it in to small particles. Asthmatics nebulize asthma medication to get into their lungs, to open up their lungs. 25 plus years ago, first patient tried nebulized peroxide and iodine on an end-stage chronic obstructive pulmonary disease patient. Gentleman was in his 70s, came to me, he was blue. I called him the blue man, he looked like a smurf. He's wearing a nasal cannula and carrying oxygen with him, could barely talk, looked like he was dying at any time. So I knew about the old literature and doctors would nebulize iodine and nebulize peroxide to help the lungs with infection as well as to help oxygenate the lungs. So I had him start nebulizing a combination of peroxide and iodine, and he started breathing better. He started coming in the office. He'd drag his tank around, but many times he didn't have it around his nose. And I took care of him for about 15 years. He was near 90 when he died. He took that nebulizer from one nursing home to the next. I go visit him in the nursing home, and that nebulizer was front and center. He would do it three to four times a day. That gave him at least a decade or more to his life. I've used it on patients with pneumonia and COVID and COVID breathing times, the nebulized peroxide and iodine was just one of the most fabulous treatments I've seen. Usually with the second dose of nebulizing, people could breathe again. Their lungs would open up. 
So iodine can be used in many different ways. It can be used topically for a skin wound or if they have breast cancer or some kind of skin cancer, you can put iodine on the skin. 20% of the body's iodine is in the skin and keeps the skin healthy. Like I told you before, cyst nodules, hyperplasia, cancer can help to reverse that. And you can rub iodine over where tumors are or where cysts are or where nodules are and take it orally to help with it internally. I just have to say thank you so much for your service during this period of COVID and all that you've done to share the truth about treatments that actually work and actually help people. So grateful for you. And I'm glad that you talked about applying it topically because in my clients, especially with my female clients, when they get a lot of breast tenderness and so forth cramping, I'll just have them paint their breasts and their belly and they always feel better. So it's just, again, like you said, it's kind of that top dog nutrient that does so many things in the body. Dr. Brownstein, you talked about how iodine is a wonderful detoxifier of metals such as mercury and then, of course, lead and so forth. I'm curious, is there anything else you want to add to that conversation regarding metals? Just wanted to touch base with you on that a bit. Well, metal toxicity is a huge problem. And again, the two metals that I see high in most people are mercury and lead. And the most common sources of mercury are fillings in the mouth, the dark fillings. The younger generation doesn't have that as much as people over the age of about 35 and older. And then the second most common source of mercury toxicity is fish, eating fish. And third most common reason for mercury toxicity is just an environmental toxin that's released from coal burning. And it's all over the place. If you're not checking for it, you won't see it. I can tell you conventional doctors aren't trained in how to check for it. You need to work with a functional holistic doctor or practitioner who can check for this. And the second most common toxicity is lead. Lead is still in our water pipes. It's in lead paint. I mean, not still sold, but it's all, you know, it's still in homes from before. And it is still all over the environment, particularly being carrying our water into our homes, especially in older cities have not replaced their lead pipes. Flint, Michigan was that latest example of lead. And Flint's just a microcosm of what's going on. Lead's un- under every city probably that's older than 60 years old across the United States. So these things aren't being checked. So the amount of lead and mercury toxicity isn't known out there. But boy, if you start checking it, you'll see it. Aluminum toxicity is really high, particularly with aluminum-based antiperspirants, lead, mercury, cadmium is another one that I see frequently on people from cigarette smoking. And then you just see it. When people don't smoke cigarettes, you know, see cadmium toxicity, lead, mercury, cadmium, arsenic toxicity, is in well waters all over the U.S., particularly in Michigan, where there's a lot of farming because a lot of pesticides and insecticides have arsenic as their chemical makeup. So a lot of well waters are contaminated with arsenic. And once these things are brought to light, you can do specific detox programs to rid the body of that. Iodine can be part of that detox program, part of that immune system support program. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that, Dr. Brownstein. So what I've noticed in my clinic is that iodine requires companion nutrients to work optimally, such as zinc and selenium. You've talked about other nutrients that support the use of iodine as well. I also like to upgrade the diet first before I add in iodine because some people notice detox effects. And we want to make sure that people are educated and understanding if they're having a negative impact, what that really means. And I was just wondering if you could walk us through what's happening when someone has an adverse reaction to iodine and why an adverse reaction doesn't necessarily mean that it's not beneficial for them. You can get an adverse reaction from anything, an adverse reaction from water, from magnesium, vitamin C. People can have allergic reaction to anything. So there are some people that have an allergy to 
iodine. However, an allergy to inorganic non-radioactive iodine, like we're talking about, is very rare. An allergy to iodine dye is not so rare. That doesn't mean because you have an allergy to iodine dye that you're allergic to inorganic non-radioactive iodine. So allergic reactions are pretty rare. The other, what's not so rare with iodine is that since iodine can displace fluoride and bromide, particularly bromide, when you give iodine, the receptors release bromide that has to be released from the body. And sometimes that overwhelms the, the liver and the kidneys, particularly if the liver's already a little bit toxic going into that. People can feel really crappy with that. And that can mean tiredness, brain fog, achy, flu-like symptoms. It's called a Herxheimer reaction. In this case, what I tell people to do many times if they have a reaction from taking iodine is to take a teaspoon or two of salt throughout the day for about two weeks, stop the iodine, take a teaspoon or two of salt. And the reason for that is in the olden days of modern medicine, the 20th century, bromide was part of a lot of different drugs. And it's still a part of many different drugs now. And so is fluoride. But bromoseltzer was really commonly used for antacid stuff. And people would just pop that stuff left and right and drink bromoseltzer. There was bromine toxicity that would occur. And in bromine toxicity, they would get delirious and they couldn't think clearly. And so doctors would treat bromide toxicity with salt water or saline. And they would give them an idea of saline and try and salt the bromide out. So the way you can do that in today's world is use unrefined salt, a teaspoon or two, for about two weeks, and then try the iodine again. And well over 90% of people that have problems with iodine can take iodine from doing it that way. And the other thing that helps is detox the liver, then try the iodine again. There's very few people that have an iodine sensitivity that can't take it. They're out there, but there are few and far between. And again, that's why the diet is so important, as you know, and you've written and talked about that a lot. All these chemically laden foods that, again, go back to creating this burden. And that's why I like to focus on the diet first, and then we can start to add in other therapies later. Dr. Brownstein, I'm just curious, with regard to testing methods, what are some of the best methods? I like to use urine. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. What about using the skin as kind of a testing apparatus, if you will? The theory of using the skin for iodine is that iodine is brownish in color. The oxidized form of iodine, T-I-N-E, it's brown in color. So when you rub iodine in the skin, there's a little bit of brownish color to it. If you're really deficient in iodine, the skin will absorb that iodine quickly. And if that brown color goes away within 24 hours, it's assumed that you're really deficient in iodine. If the brown color stays, we'll assume that the skin has enough iodine in there. However, there was a study that measured this, and they found out that 80% of the iodine applied to the skin sublimates off into a gaseous phase and just releases that way. So because 20% of the body's iodine is residing in the skin, there's 80% that's not residing in the skin. I don't think the skin way is the best way to do this. And I don't think it provides much information. The urinary excretion testing is the better way to do it. I can tell you functionally it correlates better with how people are, correlates better with iodine levels when I check through serum, saliva, or urine. And the skin does not correlate very well at all. I'm glad you said that. I think that's really important because that's that's also going around, I see, as, as a way to test and then try and supplement. So is there anything else you'd like to share with us today, Dr. Brownstein? Well, the only last thing is if you're not feeling good, I say don't settle for not feeling good. Search and find a practitioner who is willing to, number one, listen to you, and number two, work with you. And if your practitioner is not listening to you, is not working with you, then why are you going to them? Find someone who will. And number two, it's important for you 
to educate yourself. The main reason I started writing my books was to educate my patients and what my thought processes were and what the literature, what I how I viewed the literature out there. And I wanted my patients to be partners with me, to be on board with what I was doing. This way I thought we'd get better results to work together. So that's how I've sort of done my career of working with my patients. The best patients are the most knowledgeable ones. And I always tell patients, you're driving the car. I'm just on the side of the street, yelling, go left, go right, go straight. You decide where that car is going. But many times I can see the patient driving right for a tree from either they're eating poorly or whatever they're doing. And I'm telling them, turn right, turn right, turn right. And it's up to you to turn that wheel to drive down the road or correct speed and to take care of your body because you only have one of these. And it's tough in this world. And COVID proved it to us. Look what happened in our country to COVID. We performed the worst of every Western country out there. And part of the reason we did that was that we went into COVID as a sick country from the beginning. And the other part was the poor advice we were given from the powers that be, such as the CDC, FDA, and HHS. And their policies and their missteps were directly responsible for a big part of this catastrophe that's happened from COVID. Yeah, sadly. So... Thank you so much for that. Thank you for your time. Again, your wisdom, your knowledge, all that you do in the world to help people and to share the truth. So thank you again, Dr. Brownstein. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Samantha. Thanks so much for joining us today. Dr. Brownstein reminds us that education is the key to achieving your optimum health. When you are an empowered patient, anything is possible. You can find Dr. Brownstein at centerforholisticmedicine.com and order his books at drbrownstein.com. I believe sharing is caring, so I have a favor to ask. If my show is helpful to you, I would be so honored if you would leave me a review in iTunes so more people can find me. It is through sharing that we create community, eliminate guilt and shame, and bring about healing. Thank you in advance for taking five minutes out of your day to support my show so others can find me. Don't miss an episode of Eat for Life. Make sure you hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast player.